do you, do you think, before you take your headphones off, what? we should redo the intro? Because I feel that we never actually, Zia actually never said who she was. Oh, did we not? No. no. <laughs> Fine. All right. Let's start again. Uh, not Queenie. Georgia, who are you? Hi. <laughs> no, it's doing it properly. You've got to do intro yourself as well. Well, no, because we can't cut that in now. We'll just do it at the end and say, by the way, we didn't introduce everyone. Why don't you do brief, just super brief. Actually, then... let's just okay. do it. Okay, yeah. hey, let's go around the table and introduce ourselves. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to the studio. So, I'm Ian, Editor-in-Chief of Internet Retailing. Hi, I'm Roz, Chief Operating Officer at the National Portrait Gallery. Hi, I'm Zia Zareem Slade. I am non-executive of Bold Tendencies in Peckham and former Chief Creative Officer of Hauser & Worth. Hi, I am Georgia and I am Head of Marketing at Adobe. So, this is going to be tricky because we've already been chatting for an hour <laughs> and so we're sort of in the middle of all the conversations. I'm just going to try and I'll need your help to be grown up and structured. Who, what you do, they will get onto the theme, which, dear listener is retailers in the arts. So I've gathered a couple of amazing people who have been at some point in their lives retailers and worked in the arts, and we're going to look at a little compare, contrast, etc. Hey, that's it. We've started properly now. So let's kick off. Roz, tell us, without making us feel too inadequate, mm-hmm. a little bit about <laughs> you. It's shocking. When I did read your LinkedIn profile. I just had a combination of envy and uh, inferiority. So do share that with us along with your current role. Just kick us off. Tell us a bit about you and uh, your current role as well. So my current role is Chief Operating Officer at the National Portrait Gallery and it's quite an expansive role but I came here by a very circuitous route. In the mid-90s I had the joyous privilege of setting up the first website ever for Channel 4. There were three of us and nobody knew or really cared what a website was <laughs> um, but it was kind of a pivotal moment and it set me up with a skill set that was quite rare at the time and then so when everybody decided they needed digital I was all set so I kind of journeyed through the music industry which was you know one of the first industries that was really impacted by the arrival of digital through into book publishing which learned a lot from music publishing along the way and then through various charities and kind of found myself in the arts predominantly over the past 10 years. I was a digital director at Tate which was an immense privilege for six years and then I took some time out and worked in the cosmetics industry for a brief time to reacquaint myself with the commercial world and then for the past three years I've been chief operating officer for the National Portrait Gallery. During most of that time we've been closed which was planned as we've done a complete transformation of the building, of the offer. And my role is uh, very lean on the commercial side, so I oversee all our retail and catering and visitor experience. One of the key things about the project really is about financial sustainability Mm. because these museums are big old buildings and they cost a fortune to run. And even when you have a very good year, you still don't make an awful lot of money at the end of it. So that's really mm. been my focus in this role. But it's a COO role. So people are thinking HR, finance, you know, beating up IT and that kind of stuff. So it's not really a COO role like we would think of one, is it? It's not, no. And I think they couldn't think of the job title for it. So they just called it COO. So within my interesting portfolio, I've got um, commercials, so catering and retail, which we have on site and e-commerce. 
I've got visitor experience, which has been an absolute joy because we've been able to reinvent it all. I've got digital and comms, and quite randomly, I have estates and ops. And so I've learned an awful lot about steam boilers in the past three years <laughs> and health and safety and fire safety. So just to add. I, I wouldn't have thought that steam boiler and health and safety <laughs> go together. No. Uh, when, when I'd first arrived there, a very burly uh, engineer came up to me and he was telling me about his job and he said, you know you're sitting on a nuclear bomb underneath here that's going to go off at any time, which was a real welcome to the job. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So jumping back from the exploding boiler, you mentioned in passing the cosmetics, but that was the last time we were in the studio together, wasn't it? It was, and that was quite an interesting brief and a very interesting year. So uh, it was a classic old cosmetic company which was going bust and was bought by a Chinese company, the Nanhai Corporation, who wanted to experiment with global retail but also a complete relaunch of a brand. So how do you take a classic old brand and those brand values and relaunch it to new consumers in a completely different model. So the idea was to move away from high street retail, which didn't work and didn't make any money, into more experiential. Mm. So we had quite an interesting... I think the rebrand was brilliant. It looked gorgeous. We played around with lots of cosmetic events, which was very enjoyable. And I, I, I parted ways with them once it was all launched. And I think they ran into trouble, particularly with COVID and their Chinese financiers. I'm not quite sure where they're at right now. But it was a super interesting year. And mm. one of those really rare briefs where someone says, just go away and experiment and see what you come up well, with. Well, I remember talking about it and thinking that is not something I'd heard before as a as a role and a proposition. So um, I'll put a link in the programme notes to um, that programme. Mm. But before we move on, you have just reopened a very serious remodelling of NPG. So we talked a bit about the role. Yep. Uh, maybe just tell us where the NPG fits into British life, what you've done to it, and how that's gone. Thank you. That's a very big question, Ian. So um, the National Portrait Gallery houses the nation's collection of portraits. So that's owned by the public, and we operate as an arm's length body of the government, and our remit is to engage the public with portraiture. But the portraiture, really, it's like, why is it there, and what, what do you have to do to be in the collection? So to be in the collection, you have to have contributed to British history or British society. Mm. And that's the good, the bad and the ugly. Oh. It's also the changing nature of good and bad and ugly, as we're very familiar with now. And, and you, you know? label them as such. So if I went in... <laughs> Could I tell? <laughs> no. But I thought I, you were going to say, if you went in, which section would you be in? Well, I think you know that. <laughs> <laughs> but what I hope we do now, better than we did previously, is tell those stories. Because sometimes you go in and you look at something and you go, that's a fantastic portrait, interesting of its own. Quite often you go, there's a room full of faces and I'm not sure why they're here. So I hope we've done a lot more of the why now uh, and I hope it's a place where people can reflect on what it means to be British and what British culture is so as an example I don't know much about history so I really enjoy joining and walking around with our fantastic curators who know all about it and there were a couple of things that stood out to me quite quickly it was first of all we've always been leaving and joining Europe this has been going on for hundreds of years which kind of makes me feel a bit better about now right mm. and there's always been some really really terrible characters which even compared to some of the people who are around right now, they look quite tame in comparison. <laughs> so this kind of historical perspective that actually, whilst we may be going through very interesting times, it's not that unique, sort of makes me feel a bit better. But I hope that people will come along. And, it, and I think it fits really well now, right, with our obsession about portraiture of selfies and the stories that are told through that. 
that it gives people a space to reflect on that form of their own art that they're doing all the time, yeah. but also a reflection on what it means to be British and how we contribute to that and where we fit into it all. So I'm going to pause here just because over lunch, Zia was telling us about her response as a visitor to it. So could you maybe just share that with us and then we'll ask you who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying that um, for me, what really stood out as the experience is the complete reproposition, which is that previously, as was said, you'd go in, there'd be a room of portraits and it's an interesting study in portraiture. But this actually now feels like it is telling the story of a nation through the medium of portraiture. And I think that's a fundamental shift from where it had previously been. The fact that there are themes through the spaces, the fact that you can understand history, you go on a journey, there's an energy to the, the way that the works are hung, which I think is really interesting. And you saw everyone, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, the old and the young, all in, there's something there for everyone. And it, I think they've done an exceptional job of re giving it a new sense of purpose, a new, a new lease of life. Excellent. Now... So I think that really, the reason I wanted you to say that is because that is my memory view the first time we met, which That's is coming on for, <laughs> for umpty umpty years ago, where I, I temporarily had a budget and I was sitting in a consultancy with a whole pile of guys trying to sell me tech <laughs> and process and basically not listening to what I said, just thinking I'm going to take your budget uh, and double it. And you were the only person talked about why I was doing the customer experience, what we tried to do. So you've been pretty customer obsessed since I've known mm. you. So why don't you pick that up and then just tell us a thread of all the lovely retailers you've been at and done lovely things and what you're doing now. Well, thank you. Um, so much like Roz, I actually fell into e-commerce way back in the late Guys, 90s. Guys, we can't say this. Why? <laughs> you're, why? You're giving your ages away. No, yeah. it's, like, <laughs> it's modesty. Dear listener... We were highly, highly trained and we knew what we were doing. Well, when I started back out uh, then, I actually remember the board of, um, I won't say the business I was working for, saying, this internet thing will never take off. And, and, and where is that company now? <laughs> they got sold for a pound. Actually, after the website and the e-com offer um, ended up being the biggest store from a profitability perspective in the entire mm -hmm. portfolio of nearly 300 stores nationwide. Um, and it sold something that didn't fit through your letterbox and yeah. needed quite a lot of time and skill and care to kind of um, get together. And it was quite a high ticket item. So you're talking £5,000 as average spend, which back in the late 90s was quite... Was real money. <laughs> real Proper money on e-com. But there weren't that many experts around, right, at the time. And I was in a position where I had to learn on the job and whether it was learning how to write HTML code or SQL queries or understand how to do the translation between the technical team and the creatives all of those things came to play and I was there for about six and a half years and it was an incredible kind of baptism of fire and um, grounding for where I went in the future. But for me, what really kind of triggered at that time was the joy of being able to make people's behaviour change through mm. technology and realise commercial value and a new way of storytelling. And so that's kind of what I got very interested in. Then when I met you in was post that and I was working at a consultancy doing that for others. And I, you know, I was at an exceptional organization called Conchango. We worked with, you know, all the kind of 
great in the good retailers. Yeah, and us. <laughs> including, <laughs> including you. Um, but I had a great time working with people like Virgin Atlantic and B&Q and Tesco um, and, and a number of different organisations, everything from retail through telco through to different utilities. And my role there really was at the intersection of commercial brand and tech. Like, how do you join those things up, translate them for everyone else in the room to to realise whatever the ambitions are of your clients. And that's what I did for a you know, good a good stint there. I then went on to Sapient Nitro, which was much mm-hmm. more of the same. And then eventually went to head up online at Selfridges, um, which was, you know, fantastic and, and a real kind of joy and privilege. I'm a Londoner, I love the brand. Um, they'd had a sadly failed kind of e-com launch. And so I really could get kind of stuck into making a difference. And it was a, it was a great time there. And I think, they, you know, what they've gone on to achieve. I mean, when mm. I remember when they said that they were going to kind of re-engineer the back of the building to be able to allow for click and collect, you kind of knew you'd, you'd fix something. Fix something. <laughs> and then after that, I went on to be customer experience director at Fortnum & Mason. And I was there for seven and a half years. And really at that point, you know, I think I think my boss had kind of got sick of me talking about the frustrations of e-com being in a silo and like the fact that customer journeys and customer experiences are joined up and whatever the brand is promising out through its shiny advertising needs to be realised mm. at every kind of touch point. And so at Fortnum's, I was then given that full remit and that was everything from packaging design of own label products through to designing kind of restaurants and Christmas okay. campaigns mm-hmm. and windows and all kinds of So this is where we just have to pause a moment because I can remember when you got the job thinking, this is a made-up job. Surely <laughs> you can't have that much fun. Stick your nose into everything. And like I taught you one day, so I've just been redoing the scarf display. I've commissioned this is the thing. I've commissioned an artist to do something on the second floor yeah, yeah. by opening a restaurant. I mean, I literally had to stop looking at your Instagram feed because it was just so <laughs> sickening. Um, what was it like? So, so I get the fun, but you'd spent years saying, telling, suggesting, and all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you got all the toys. Mm -hmm. Was that scary or was it like I was born for this, stand back? I mean, what was that switch like from the theory to the, this is my train set and I'm going to play with it? Um, I would say that it was terrifying in many ways because there was no rule book. Um, It hadn't really been done before. It was a new role for the organisation. It's a 300-year-old brand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of protectionism and a lot of heritage and a lot of unspoken rules at the time so it was it was terrifying and and you know as someone who probably has imposter syndrome and blah 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 blah, all those kinds of things you're like oh no really everyone's eyeballs are on me and I oh what if I get this wrong but equally it meant that there was no right or wrong actually and the logic of if the brand promises to have the very best quality or that it's going to make your life better some way, this product, is not then realised when it turns up on their doorstep or when it's gifted to someone, then we're failing. Mm. And so as long as you kind of then have the ability to understand how to bring the data out that proves the point and it's not personal and emotional, you're not all those kinds of issues that we've all experienced, then you can say, look, see, see how much better it will be if we could just fix these bits. Yes. And I think the reality is, and, you know, I learned, when I was at Kanchango, I set up the experience planning team, which was all about kind of 
bringing in the methodology of how do you map a customer journey and prove where there are gaps and weaknesses that can convert either to increase customer satisfaction, which invariably equates to lower cost because you're not recovering, recovering or better marketing spend or referrals and therefore commercial value. And so I'd had a good stint of learning and honing mm. that way of thinking to then be able to take that in without it feeling like a formula. Is so it's a very long-winded answer, sorry, Ian. But. Is that where you stuck? Because obviously there's a lot of crossover, really, if you think about it, between those two projects, right? You're both in very loved and trusted British brands and you're coming in and going, how do I revolutionise, really, mm. the customer experience and their interpretation of our brand? Is that where you start? Like how, because it's such a huge and kind of almost limitless task, right? When you're looking at it, how do you begin? How do you start? I think for me, it wasn't that that was the brief on day one. The yeah. brief on day one was more like, this isn't a brand that needs bringing up to date. It's got a number of challenges. Its website is dreadful. Can you fix the website? <laughs> right. That was the starting Right, brief. yeah. And, you know, at that time, I think when I joined, the website was very much a brochureware site that mm -hmm. serviced a corporate customer at yeah. Christmas to be able to buy mm. some hampers. And it had never <laughs> been perceived as adding any, you know, there was no understanding that this also was as important as the window schemes that yeah. went into Piccadilly or from a brand point of view. And so my, my mandate changed over time. And I'm someone who likes to kind of look across the way and understand what else is going on. I'm always kind of curious about what's going on in the rest of the business. And so then we pull out moments in time, which is like, uh, I don't think we're doing a good enough job over here. Or we've we've said this to customers and like, look what's happening over here. So, mm -hmm. you know, unfortunately, as one of those people that kind of points it out, everyone looks at you and then goes, well, get on with it. Then. Yeah. <laughs> That's handy because there are other responses available. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think so it, was it was incremental yeah. rather than. Yeah, but I also think, you know, at the time the CEO had joined, their brief was kind of to take the brand on a on a growth journey. Yeah. Mm. And so when you, uh, you know, in the cold light of today, you're going, what do I need to do to drive commercial value for this organisation in a heritage brand? You look at the train set you've got, you understand which bits work, which bits don't, and what you need to change. And I think that's, he went on that journey. Mm. Yeah. And at that time, you know, Econ was such a huge opportunity from a commercial perspective mm. um, and and it's a very well-loved brand and so you couldn't do it without both things but, working together but in your case Ross the sort of sign was on the door yes saying come and join us because we have this humongous project so unlike say with um, Zia who sort of got in there and then winkled away into other <laughs> things driven by customer passion of course exactly um in your case there was this big sign on the door which would intimidate a number of people saying hey we're gonna redo the whole thing so you're know, just picking up on george's question how did you approach that was it like saddle up ride into the sunset or were you more measured i was attracted by the size of the challenge and a lot of the parameters were in place when i arrived so you know kind of the scope for the building and some of the overall ambition of it and what needed to happen so quite similar to what zia was saying it's a very loved brand mm. but it was very much acknowledged that um the longevity of the brand needed work mm. but we know we've got more aging 
ageing fans, uh, we needed to open new and diverse audiences. And so a real challenge was about how do you do that? How do you do that brand extension when you've got such a heritage whilst maintaining the kind of soul and heart of that heritage? And I think that's something that we thought about really carefully as we've gone through it. So um, we completely redid the brand. However, within that, we've got a new monogram, which looks really cool, and you can buy it on hats and bags. Um, <laughs> but it's from your archive. It's from the archive. And it's actually yeah. it's in the mosaics of the floor yeah. of the building. And we've got it in the archive, and it was hand-drawn in ink by our very first director. Wow. So we've maintained that heritage. And we've kind of tried to do that with everything that we've done, but just give it a twist and mm. expand it, you know. So mm. within as you go in the galleries, the much-loved galleries like the Tudor galleries, mm. it's still there. It's enhanced. It's more beautiful. We clean them up. We put some more women in, for example. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, you know, one of the f physical things we've done, with the, we've got a much bigger door. So the building was always supposed to have a big door. I don't know how familiar you are with the building. You, mm. you had to go through this kind of pokey side entrance. But there was always supposed to be a massive front door. I thought you couldn't open Leicester it Square. because of the heating bills. Well, <laughs> so it, it, when, when the original owner or commissioner had... Um, had set the building up in the late 1890s, they said they didn't want the door there because it faced the dirt and smut of Soho, oh. which is why the door was never there. And now it faces a row of really nice pizza places in Leicester Square. <laughs> so it felt the appropriate time to put the door where it always should have been. Right? Yeah. So now you can't miss it. If you're walking from Leicester Square to Trafalgar Square, you can't miss it. So it's like visibly and physically more accessible. Mm. But one of the key things we thought about is how do you get the art in front of people when they come in and try so we don't have to explain what it is so people get what we are. So very quickly as you into the building there's a new gallery we've put by the ticket desk uh, and it's making history now so you will see Marcus Rashford you see Michael Evish you'll see yeah. um, a couple of royals but hopefully there's enough people there who are current right now that you'll relate and go whatever your background is you go oh look there's so and so I get that mm. but even that right even going you know and we needed to do the front door and we needed to have some art sooner like what was your journey in coming to that list of things that we absolutely needed to do was it was it you kind of entering and going, I'm going to map that customer experience, as Zia was saying, from kind of front to finish? Or was there already kind of a list somewhere? Well, one of the joyous things on Journey, when, when you join a new company and you realise you've actually got a brilliant team. Uh, so um, that was one of the great things of joining the National Portrait Gallery is that we had fantastic audience data that had been done up every year. Not just data about ourselves, really good understanding of similar museums, people in similar locations, and also tons of research about people who didn't come and why they didn't come. Yeah. So it was very data-led. We had a lot to go on, which mm. was um, yeah. really helpful. And has there been a shift in the time since you've been open? Can you detect that you've managed to increase that diversity or attract more people? I know it's still mayhem and yep. the whole world. I mean... Well, data's real-time data. It's only been They're six sure days. Is. Yes, it's only been six <laughs> days, so we haven't had time to drill down into it yet. It's certainly coming in very big numbers. And the, the feedback we're getting from um, organisations that we're quite close with, like, for example, schools and colleges, is brilliant. And I think you only have to look around. This isn't very scientific, but looking around, we've got a lot of young people and it looks diverse, exciting, vibrant. Qualitative data. That's it, my yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we've mentioned diverse three times. We mentioned gender earlier on in terms of representation. And we've talked about old brands with, let's say, legacy viewpoints. So retail is a world where you reinvent. You want to stay with your customer, maybe half a step ahead, but not too far ahead. So let's maybe look at, you know, how how you go about in these established organisations which aren't always responsive in real time to the customer and changing demographics. What were the challenges when you turn up and say, OK, 
old white men. Move over, let's have some more ideas in here. We can talk about it at 30 paces, but, you know, when, when you're in it, what were the challenges or successful approaches? And, you know, do you think that um, you've taken a few steps towards improvement? No career limited comments. I'm just interested in the process <laughs> of, um, you know, working within these bigger established organisations rather than a lean, mean, agile team. Yeah, so we call it stakeholder management, I expect, oh. from a very broad range <laughs> that of so stakeholders. Grown up. It does sound very grown up, isn't it? And in those circumstances, um, you're never going to please all the people at when we are taking these steps and trying to do things really quite differently. We had the, um, on our side, we did have the benefit of time because we got three years so we could work through that. But um, I'm always a fan of picking out a couple of people from that stakeholder network who are going to be on my side and have my back to kind of start with the people who are going to really help make that role for you. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, I think with our sort of with our retail offer, I hope we've got the classic offer that you would expect within a museum, you know, the tote bags and the hats flying yeah. off the stand. But we've also got some really great artist products in there. We've got a really different range, which over time, you know, we really need to grow that. So one of the exciting things about the National Portrait Gallery is its location, right? Mm. So sometimes you run a museum shop and you're in the middle of nowhere, so only museum visitors are going to come. We really want this to be a destination. So yeah. like if you're out Christmas shopping, you'll think of us because of our fantastic home range. Or shoplifting and you need a tote bag to carry your stuff back. Yeah. And where we've gone really different this time is actually with our um, catering. So we've got the portrait restaurant, which is on the top of the building, and you're kind of eye to eye with Nelson. And then um, we've opened up a lot of the basement uh, and we've brought in a fantastic young catering company downstairs. They're called Daisy Green. They're Australian. Oh, yeah. And so on the first floor, we have the Audrey Green Cafe and you'll find it's very West End. So it's got Audrey Hepburn and it's got ballet dancers, amazing coffee, fantastic brunches. And then down in the basement, we've got Larry's Bar after Laurence Olivier and it's cocktails, it's late night, it's fantastic. So really diverse and different for us but again this is about placemaking because people don't know yeah. this yet so we're week one in we're getting loads of our own visitors but part of our financial sustainability over time is to be known as a late night place to go for wow. a really cool drink well the lucky listeners of this wonderful show will now <laughs> all be there <laughs> i hope so i love the fact you say listeners listeners as if all three of them, of them. <laughs> <laughs> zia just to jump back on that point then in your time at uh, Fortners, I definitely felt it became less musty and kind of more design-led mm-hmm. and just relevant to, you know, I thought a, a mm-hmm. sort of a higher-end modern London department store feel. So I think it was definitely, I could feel the impact as a visitor. W- was that something that, uh, you know, was easy to get through or do people have to go on a journey with you around the changes of the brand? I would say that it was probably a bit of both. So I was there for seven and a half years and I was there, I left two and a half, nearly three years ago. Mm -hmm. So we're talking, when I first started to George's earlier question, it was a long time ago now. Yeah. Um, And so I think, you know, it wasn't a case of walking in the door and having all the answers about what the rebrand meant. In fact, we kind of, in the seven years I was there, there was one rebrand and kind of piece of work that had been done on the, the proposition. And then we refreshed it before I left as well. So I think these things are always kind of evolving. And I think it for me, it was really quite simple in the end, which was that for the business to be sustainable from a profitability perspective, stuff needed to change. And there was a huge amount of opportunity. Um, Fortnum's typically you know, makes what it sells, right? And it buys mm. product in and 
So when all was said and done, I tried to simplify it so that everyone could understand what we needed to do. And it, it came down to a simple mantra of to be more relevant to more people more often. And <laughs> fund good, good mantra. Can we just chop that bit out of the podcast then I can pretend I thought of that? I've, I've already tried not to. But it was, you know, in the, you can, too many times we go into organisations and they're like these massive brand things and these kind of big, big diagrams about how it's all going to work. And actually, whether you were working in the warehouse or in a restaurant, mm. you un could understand that the strategy really was about being more relevant to more people more often. Each aspect of that had a number of different layers to it. What do we mean by relevant? Relevant when? Well, then you look at customer, and you know, right, 60% of what people buy from us is gifted. And therefore, actually, the end recipient of the goods is not my customer. So how am I trying to join those connections? What are all the different life stages that people go through in which they could have uh, a gifting moment? What, when we say more people, what people, which audiences, mm. which markets? Okay, well, where have we got low-hanging fruit from an opportunity perspective? Which audiences do we need to bring in and, and attract? So an example of how you do that from, from my, my experience was when we brought out champagne pops. And I'm Sorry. literally talking about the equivalent of a Calippo, although other frozen products are available, um, <laughs> that's made from champagne. And they were O-label and they turn up out, like we had ice cream carts that would go out to the Serpentine Gallery and parks oh and things. God. And it got press and it got, you know, it was something for people to Instagram. And all of a sudden you had younger people, and I'm not advocating young people should be drinking. Uh, <laughs> but, they are licking, but they are delicious licking. and I identify as a young person. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's a way of making someone stop and look and go, who? What? Yeah. Huh? Fortnum's, oh, and then we appraise you in that way. And doing it at the time of not ever kind of ostracizing or, or making anyone else feel like they were, it wasn't mm. for them. So so in the simplicity of that statement, there was a lot of kind of complex stuff. But that, the fact that you got the simplicity plus the data plus the vision. Sometimes it was your gut instinct yeah, and you, you kind of just went for it. It's even more than that, right? Because it's also product as marketing. So you're not even just looking at, you know, what you would traditionally, I guess, look at as your role when uh, mm -hmm. as a marketer or as a leading experience. You're kind of going, actually, now, what is the product solve? Like, how can I use product mm -hmm. to create that experience? Which, you know, quite often we yeah, look yeah. for kind of creative or marketing solves, mm -hmm. but you've gone, actually, but let's make a yeah. popsicle. Exactly. But sometimes <laughs> it's just putting lipstick on a pig. Which we never well, did. And it's never it's did, also it? then knowing and having the discipline to call out when that's happening, mm. yeah. actually. So, you know, I, I think from my school reports from the age of 11, it said I don't suffer fools gladly. So if that was ever an idea that was, you know, can we make a chocolate bar that is this price and then we can just put it by the till points? No, because that's what you do if you were at Sainsbury's. Mm. Nothing wrong with Sainsbury's. I think, and Sainsbury's lawyers are great friends of ours. Please yeah. cut that bit out. But like any, any other food retailer which yeah. you go through a till point is going to be yeah. trying to do that. And that's, we we were different and we're better than that. It's not to say there wouldn't be pickup items to entice you for your last no. bit. But, but I think playing to the obvious and, and I think one of the things we tried to really do is always look at the unexpected. And just to, to kind of go on to that point a little bit further and tie it back to all, what, why we're all in the room was one of the things that was really important to us from a physical perspective was that you know, Fortnum Mason on Piccadilly needed to be relevant to Londoners and people in London because it had lost a little mm. bit of that. It was more for tourists. And that's great, but actually it needed to kind of be part of the current 
London scene and the visitors to London. And I don't just mean kind of domestic tourists, I mean activity and industry. So Freeze, the magnificent art fair that happens every October, there's a huge amount of numbers of people that come to this city. They're looking for things to do other than just the fair. They're in town for a very limited amount. These are the culture and taste makers around the world. What were we doing to appeal to them? Zero, nada, nothing. So then we said, right, well, we've got an opportunity here. And we engaged with a British art collector and we decided to put on a show of modern British art within the store. And this is going back a few years. And so at first, some people said, what? So we'll just rehang the ones like in a certain location. I said, no, we're at, we go big or we go home. The whole thing, windows, all the staircases, and I remember we were working with a curator and he said, well, this particular piece is good. It's a bit provocative maybe for the Fortnum's customer. I said, if we're not provoking, then we're, we're failing because I don't want someone to walk in and not notice it's changed. Mm-hmm. You know, if they think that there's still the tea clippers are on the wall, we've got a problem. So actually disrupting our is what needs to happen. And we had a Tracy Emin in the window, a Leon Kossoff behind the till point. Um, it, it was incredible. But it must have worked. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been there seven and a half years. It would have been truncated after people fainted uh, as they wandered up the stairs. Yeah. So in a way, we are talking about a success. Yeah, absolutely. But it was the blend of art and retail. Lovely. But can I take you on quickly to House and Worth? Mm-hmm. Because we've gone... We've been talking accessibility, we've been talking about customer, but again, as an outside person, Housing Worth is very much the pinnacle of big artists, big budgets, and serious people spending serious amounts of money on both of the above. So just give us the impression you've gone from that time at Fortnum, building like the terroir of this place, and then you think, oh, hello, international art scene. Not, not, not the world's most obvious Move. Well, I'd, I'd collaborated with Hauser & Worth at, when I was at Fortnum's when we did a big project, um, one of the art installations with them, and, and it was an incredible experience. And uh, I was invited to go and be the chief creative officer of the gallery, which was which incredible. Which again, come on, they made that title up for you. What does that mean? <laughs> well, like, much like Roz, it's a, it's a complex portfolio of retail, marketing, <laughs> comms, digital publishing so it was all of those activities. all the fun stuff <laughs> yeah all the other activities that isn't about the artists and, and, and the artwork other than st- telling the stories of the exhibitions that we had it was a really great experience to be able to see into that world understand it and I think things that you know uh, assumptions you make as a retailer around product or collaborations where on the other side of it I would have got a bit frustrated if We'd approach someone and they didn't want to work with us or, you know, mm. couldn't quite make it work. I now have a greater appreciation for from the side of, a, of an, an artist or um, a commercial gallery. So I think it's definitely taught me a lot and is really exciting. Super different industries and then there are parts in which yeah. they absolutely cross over when you're talking about visitor experience wayfinding if i can ever have a job which doesn't make me talk about wayfinding that will be we've got wayfinding placemaking <laughs> vx for visitor experience i assume it's called vx ve ve mm-hmm. oh it's oh, not wow. a digital background you see otherwise it would be vx okay because we're old-fashioned it's VE. But, but i think there are unpleasant gases uh, called that as well. <laughs> uh, right since you made that link let's go back then to the supposed purpose of our lovely chat today which was <laughs> let's bring it together so 
Roz, it's not just retail and the arts, it's basically every industry known to humankind, maybe not transportation yet. When you look across all of those, what's the common thread? So, you know, if you're talking to someone and say, oh yes, but from retail I bring A, B and C as part of my portfolio, what, what is the A, B and C that's portable? I think the thread that's run through my portfolio and career has been about transformation. So I've joined organisations at that point where everything is changing. Mm. So when I joined Ministry of Sound in 1999, Napster had appeared and everybody had their head in the sand and was unaware that all these teenagers were just stealing their music and rubbing their hands (laughs) with glee. And so because of that sort of wave of digital that I was on, I've arrived at that point. And so when I joined Tate in 2013, I was a huge Tate fan, fantastic brand. They really know what they're doing here, great reputation for digital. And when I joined, it was a bit like that moment in The Wizard of Oz where the curtain falls back and you see the little old man pedalling hard and I'm like, you are kidding me? This is how you run your digital. So it was a great opportunity to actually come into the arts and bring all of that Mm. together. But I was um, one of the things I love about it, I was mentioning to you earlier, is that working in the arts, working in big museums is very similar to music and publishing because you're essentially in a hits industry. So you plan for your exhibitions Mm. and your events and when they come off it's fantastic because then that's the driver of ticket sales, revenue, membership, sponsorship, all of that. Sometimes you don't do very well but what it means is you've got that very fluctuating income model so you have to look at your back catalogue and your content and go and what can we do to iron out those dips in the model oh that's interesting Mm. Uh, so you know when we haven't got a great exhibition on what is it that we're selling what are the prints that we're selling who are the artists that we're working with so you're peddling really hard and it's also about um the, the challenges are more technical, I think, within the sector. So it's mm. it's relatively easy for me to go and hire a great store manager because that fits with creative people. When I want somebody to run CRM or e-commerce who are technically highly trained, we just don't compete mm. on the salaries. And you mm. don't get people going, I want to be a developer, you know, a, an e-commerce developer to earn half what I could because I love art. It just isn't that. Mm. So it's got its own challenges within it. And we normally talk about skills. So... Is it possible to take someone with a first in art history who thinks, I want to do a bit of coding? I mean, you know, how can you then develop those skills, buy them, borrow them, use them? Is this something that, uh, you know, you've had to look at? In the past 15 years, I've met about two people who fit in that category. (laughs) On the Venn diagram, there's not much of a crossover between a first in art and people who want to be a developer. There are a few of them, but not many. Please Um, introduce us later. (laughs) (laughs) It's really challenging and it continues Mm. to be so. And occasionally you get hold of a gem of a person and it's really difficult if they leave Mm. or go on maternity leave to get any kind of backfill on it. And I think, you know, sector-wide that is an issue. So there are platforms, uh, you know, increasingly people are using Tessitura. Um, Perhaps there are areas where we need to collaborate more or bring in our own kind of training programs. But we suffer the same as anywhere else. You train someone else up to be a programmer mm-hmm. and they realise they can earn twice as much money Somewhere elsewhere. Else, yeah. Yeah. yeah, damn that free market. <laughs> but it's, it's an interesting challenge as well, I think, generally talking about creativity as well. Because if you look at all the talk now with AI and ChatGBT and what that means and the impact and the sensitivities around it's going to kill creative and, you know, actually those people that can write the prompts yes prompt writer that's where the prompt writer is the new creative director mm. <laughs> yes. surely yeah <laughs> so it's interesting mm. to see how that's gonna i mean I, I kind of am slightly in jest but i do think there is something in in that change of no, no, exactly what but what those, makes up a those, creative team but those prompt those makers have maybe a couple of decades of life experience abroad education etc and if they are using ChatGPT and training it 
rather than training a junior, an intern, a graduate, then we are heading for a sort of skills vacuum. But it's different, Mm. but it's different skills, right? I mean, I think what it should do is allow people in many ways to kind of quotation marks get more senior quicker right in terms of kind of like if you can think about it and if you have enough training in how to use ai Mm. (laughs) for good but use ai in your creative endeavor whatever it is and to be honest a lot of ai is still really far behind what a human could you know do by hand or whatever right but it's how do you use it like you still need the the creative spark you need the tension that you're trying to find in a proposition you need Mm -hmm. the challenge that you're trying to solve and you need a brain to identify the challenge Mm -hmm. it's just i think um when we look at kind of creative technology and how the two come together it's how do and especially when you're bringing young people up do you enable them to kind of use their brain to use that rather yeah. than to to necessarily go well they're not going to get to where and again it is it is an interrogative process yeah where instead of sitting back and learning yeah you have to question things so i think there are some interesting points but a of a positive georgia thank you and b i mean i am but it does bring us back to then we've talked about creative you've gone from um retail to the arts we've talked a lot about data wheedling our way in, doing the transformations, all of that seems familiar territory, thank you. But if you're now talking to someone who's still in retail and you're saying, listen, I've been on the other side, I've, I've dabbled in those there <laughs> creative upper echelon uh, places, these are the things that those guys could profitably tell you, or these are things I've learned there that I wish I'd known in retail. Are there... Firstly, are there any things? And secondly, do tell us. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking at your faces and they're going, what are you talking about? (laughs) Are you asking for hot tips? Well, I'm just thinking that, uh, you know, we've talked about creativity, which can be very nebulous. But, you know, when you look at the uh, activities you've been doing, they're big transformations, it's managing stakeholders, managing visitors. Are there things there that you think, oh, well, as at Selfridges, this would be an irrelevant thing or you know, crouching and everything, I wish I'd known X, Y, and Z? Or is it basically, nope, we're just on a mission transforming wherever we go? Wow, that is a big question (laughs) that I am... (laughs) I'm normally not short in coming forward, but I'm struggling to think at pinpoint the kind of learning from the art world experience that I would take back into... or, or wish I'd known if I was still in retail now other than protecting your product. You know, it fundamentally... But I, I, seven and a half years at Fortnum's, I've kind of... You're protecting spent a lot, it, I was yeah. protecting the product. But I think that's probably the the kind of real insight that I... And so this is like the Georgia mentioned earlier on, which was instead of just marketing, telling a good story, is having the good product mm. as well. Good point. Roz, do you want to... Yeah, I, I said that. Also, you know, just classic retail skills. Really great um, customer service, managing a retail sh- team, keeping your shop looking amazing, fantastic VM. I think visual merchandise in a shop is still, a, you know, a real um, need. One of the interesting things we found at Tate was we did loads of, we grew our e-commerce really well. Um, but one of the things we found was that, you know, Tate was the shop window for that. So when you drilled into it, mm. a vast number of our customers were people who'd been through the museum and seen mm. how great the products looked. So it's those the kind of interlinking between the two. But really classic retail skills. I mean, no, it's still hard to find. It's still hard to find people who are brilliant at that and they're still super important. I, th- I think that whether you're in retail or you're in the art sector and culture sector, you know, details matter. And that's mm. 
maybe I'm just mm. a stickler for it, but it's like I'm a non-exec on a brilliant and wonderful not-for-profit organisation in Peckham called Bold Tendencies. And the attention to detail they put into the programming and then the visitor experience is outstanding. And no one's taught them that, but it's kind of, I hate to say it, but it's kind of logical, isn't mm. it? And when you're a small team like they are and, f- and passionate about what their purpose and their mission is and the, and the world-class standard that they want to deliver, then they don't let anything slip. And I think mm. sometimes retail or arts organisations can get a bit too big and it's always someone else's job yeah. or someone else's accountability and attention to detail matters. When I was at Selfridges, there was a, now I won't name him, he would walk around the building and if there was dust anywhere, he would leave his fingerprints in it. So you knew he knew that you hadn't quite been on your job. And and that, it sounds kind of draconian, but it matters. But it's it all matters. The, mm. the detail matters at all levels 100 percent. but also that shared value that says you know we all believe this should be the best place for the customer which means it shouldn't be carrying all sorts of spores mm-hmm. and mm. communicable diseases <laughs> therefore so i think i think it's a combination of not just what is my role but how am i contributing to delivering mm-hmm. our purpose is a really interesting point i think the other thing i would say i have in reflecting on your question not necessarily learned, but had reinforced, is that more doesn't equal better, right? Mm. Mm. And and this was, you know, true at Fortnum's, which is kind of one major shop on Piccadilly with a, you know, we didn't, if you really wanted to just hit a number, you could have sold our tea in a, any number of supermarkets. That would have commercially been a good thing to do. It would have undermined the brand. But scarcity and preciousness is important part of, mm. A, the value that's built into a product or a piece of artwork and B, it is the stories that come, you know, how, how you imbue these products with the stories and the richness of the heritage mm. or it's making and craftsmanship. And I think those are kind of, that's an, an important aspect, whether you're in retail or in the, in the culture yeah. sector. Probably mm. reinforces the value of really, truly having your brand mm. nailed down yeah. and understanding what your brand represents yeah. and so that you can have... And, and living it. And living it exactly. and breathing it and then being okay. able to have that attention to detail. So I think it just shows that you know none of the stuff we do is academic. So the the bits we use our brain around the data, the insights, it has to be part of the bigger, you know, quality, the heart, the vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, very positive. I mean, given that you said I don't know what to say, then you do some zingers. I think that's... Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, fine. Look, time's nearly up. We're going to hit the hard and hot pavements of London town about our merry way uh, what projects are exciting you? So you look at the rest of the day, the week, the month, the year, you're thinking, hey, I can't wait to get my teeth into. Roz, start us off. What are you doing after your big triumph? After our big triumph, well, we're already on to the next page of, of financial sustainability and new revenue streams. Um, one of which... That's a great book. Um. <laughs> we have um, bought a little ticket office, which is just outside our forecourt. We've bought a little oh, ticket office. bought a little ticket office. Is that office. what you're doing with it? Oh, uh, initially, it's going to be food and beverage, but oh. it's going to be something a bit more interesting later on. And then we have got other projects, which um, I can't really talk about right now, but invite me back in about six months and I can tell you. Oh, right. Done. Yeah, I can see that done. I'll, <laughs> I'll have my people talk to your people. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Zia, what are you up to now? Um, not too much I can disclose, but there are two things that I would suggest everyone does. Is One is 
have have a look at the bold tendencies program for the upcoming rest of the summer a formidable a formidable program of of um live events plus obviously the art commissions that are in there and in peckham in peckham an extraordinary place to go and visit and experience art and culture whether no matter what you're into and of course get along to the national portrait gallery lovely well that's a plug georgia (laughs) what are you up to what am i up to Oh, God, nothing that could compete with the level of excitingness that these two just shared. I actually uh, am speaking at Meet Magento, so I've got to figure out what to say. Ooh, and Meet Magento is not not a kebab, is it? It's not, (laughs) for for our lovely commerce listeners. And it's equally fun, actually, because it's Adobe Commerce speaking at Magento, which is... Owned by. Owned by Adobe Commerce. <laughs> Just to add to the brand confusion. So actually, one of the things I will be doing is addressing and potentially one day solving said confusion between Lovely. Magento and Adobe Commerce. Good. I was going to say that's very meta, but then I realised someone else has got that name already. Yes, so. no, we can't say that. Good. Yeah. Well, listen, now that we have fallen from the heights of vision and customer focus, right. and I think it's time we uh, we finish off. So, massive thank you, Roz, Zia. Georgia, lovely seeing you. And you, Thank you always. very much for a very stimulating chat. I've now got some homework to do on the programme notes, which are going to be extensive this time. <laughs> hey, guys, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Thanks for you. Me. Right, good. We're done. Thank you very Brilliant. much. Thank Great. you. Thank lovely. You. Oh. And... Oh, okay. <laughs> oh.